0: Good evening. I'd like to welcome you all here this evening on behalf of three very remarkable institutions: the Fawcett Society, the London School of Economics, and the Gender Institute of the LSC. All these institutions were made possible either wholly or in part through the creative social and intellectual energy of women. All these institutions have contributed in different ways To the main purpose of this evening's event, that in the policies and practices of the social world we should recognise the different experiences of women and men. For the next 90 minutes we have an all too rare space to explore the political implications of those differences, not to see women as a subsection of a political agenda but as an integral part of it. The next thing I have to do here this evening on my agenda is to introduce Kerry Goddard, the Chief Executive of the Fawcett Society, the UK's leading campaigning organisation for women's equality and human rights, whose roots go back to the 1860s, when Millicent Fawcett led the first campaign for women's suffrage. And so, without further ado... Kerry Goddard.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Mary, for that introduction, and to um, LSE for the, their collaboration in this really important and I think really exciting um, debate. And thank you already, all of you, for coming. We're very delighted you could make it here this evening. Um, of course, hearing um, from and about women um, has always been really important, but in this election, I think even more so in to date what I think has been a very male um, affair. Uh, we've seen more column inches on the leaders' wives than we have on what their policies would actually mean for women, and we've unfortunately I think seen more than the wives than we have of the women uh, candidates that seek our vote. Um, When Fawcett started this election campaign, um, it was to ask what about women, Um, to which it now seems we must add, where are the women? Um, Well, happily, right here. Uh, We have not all of them, obviously, (laughs) obviously not all of them, Um, but we do have three of our leading um, women politicians from each of the parties here tonight, and um, we really look forward to hearing from them. Um, But just before we do, um, a few words on why we've asked them and the format of the debate and how it's all going to work. Uh, This event is the culmination of a Fawcett-led campaign that over the last two months has brought together over 60 organisations from across the United Kingdom and thousands of individual voters to ask the question, what about women? Um, As we approached the election, we knew that the issues and the decisions that were going to be debated were critical for what happened next with women's lives and women's rights. But if you don't ask, you don't get. So despite the 90 years that's passed since our founder, Millicent Fawcett, led the campaign to secure the women's right to vote, um, the full equal rights for women that she envisaged this would eventually lead to, um, which many of us believe would lead to a better society for all of us, are still far from being considered as a default or a central consideration in our policy making. Now, of course, there has been significant process, and in particular with the rise of women in parliament over the last two elections, where issues of traditionally greater concern to women are much more likely to form part of the mainstream debate, Um, both tonight, I think you'll hear, but I think you've probably seen it in in the press around this election. But all too often, the question, what about women, is still an afterthought, um, as is progressing women's equality. And that is also treated as a fringe issue. But it is not. And we are not. How the key election issues impact on women, whether we will move forward or are pushed back to social, cultural, and economic boxes that confine so many women, and also men, are actually the heart of the matter. Several generations and two waves of feminism have led to massive social changes, and also opened up possibilities for women and for all of us But is this changing social reality and these new ambitions really being reflected by our politicians? Which party has best recognized and grappled with these changes and possibilities? Whose manifesto best considers women in the short-term challenges we face and underpins a longer-term vision that will really progress gender equality? Whilst all of our speakers, I would say, agree on and have shown real commitment to the goal of women's equality. They have ideological and certainly policy differences about what this would look like, how we will get there, and what the role of government in this should be. To start with, I'm going to ask each of them just to give us a short opening three minute statement, or a pitch if they prefer, um, on what their manifesto would mean for women. We went, after that, we will then take some questions from the audience, which will be addressed to the whole panel. Now, most of these have been um, submitted in advance, um, but I will also endeavour to take some additional comments and questions from the audience uh, for those of you that didn't get a chance um, to ask in advance. I would ask both the panel, please, and the audience to keep it as pithy as possible, um, so we can cover as many issues as possible. Um, But before we start, I just need to tell people who are tweeting, and I'm actually going to read this out because, yeah, if anyone is tweeting from tonight's debate, could they please use the hashtags <laughs> debate and GE2010? OK, <laughs> we are being tweeted. We are being tweeted. OK, so um, without further ado, I'm going to um, introduce our, our first speaker. Um, and we're going to open up first um, with uh, Lynn Featherstone, who is the Liberal Democrat candidate for Hornsey and Wood Green, but she was first elected to this seat in two thousand five. And in addition, she is the Liberal Democrat spokesperson for youth and equalities. And I will introduce the other two as you come up. But Lynn, if you could start with okay, your three thank minutes.
2: You, and thanks to Forces and to the LSE for giving us this opportunity and what a wonderful turnout it is. Um, yes, women have been a bit absent from the campaign. But we are there and we are fighting that corner, our corner, amongst other things. Because women really need to be where decisions are made. And though equality has come a long way, there's still a long way to go. And in, at the heart of it, really, inequality boils down to money, in essence. Because without inequality of financial parity, women have no choices. They don't have um, equality of pay as paramount. We have no equality. The, the legacy of separation leaves us poor. Our caring responsibilities lead our poor. Women's work is not paid as well as men's work. We have um, children. So Liberal Democrats' um, key driver and key manifesto pledges, really, I think the, the most important one really is our tax, our fair taxes, which actually says that no one will pay tax on their earnings, on the first £10,000 that they earn. And that means that 3.6 million people will be taken out of tax altogether and £700 will be put back in people's pockets. And that's most important for those who have the least, and as as I've just said, women's pay is nowhere near equal. It's still 17% adrift and that's in full-time work. Therefore, that is one of the manifesto pledges that I think does distinguish us from the other two parties. Um, Our manifesto pledges, moreover, are about helping our carers. They are about equal pay and I I feel there will be questions about equal pay coming along so I don't want to go into mandatory uh, pay audits at this point. Equality at work. It's about changing also media portrayal of women. That's very key in in the Women's Manifesto. And it's about men being able to do the parenting too and it's about ensuring that vulnerable women have places of safety and are protected. There really is still, sadly, no even playing field for women, but I hope that with a Liberal Democrat government that would change considerably.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Fine piece of pithiness. Much appreciated. Um, Going to... um, uh, introduce our second speaker now, uh, who is Theresa May. She is the Conservative Party candidate for Maidenhead, and she was first elected to this seat in <coughs> 1997. Um, good year for women MPs, if I remember. Theresa is the Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and also Shadow Minister for Women. Theresa.
3: Thank you very much, Kerry. And Also, thanks to Fawcett and the LSE for this evening, which is absolutely great. And I just also a thank you, because I've been very pleased to work with Fawcett over a number of years now, particularly on issues relating to women in politics and getting uh, getting more women into parliament, and how we as a Conservative Party could change in relation to our record on that. And that's the first point I want to make, is that the Conservative Party has changed. Uh, We've changed our selection processes. We're the only party to have had open primaries, two open primaries, which have actually both resulted in women being selected as candidates. And if we do win the general election on May the 6th, we'll go up from having 18 women MPs to having about 55 or 60 women MPs, which is a step change for the Conservative Party. Now, some specific issues uh, in our proposals, in our manifesto, that would uh, relate to women. Equal pay, we will tighten up the equal pay (coughs) legislation and introduce uh, legislation which would require companies found guilty of discrimination to have compulsory pay audits. But we see the issue of equal pay as being not just about a legislative approach, it's also about improving careers advice for young women, ensuring that they're uh, they're, uh, more aware of the sorts of careers that they can go into and the financial impacts of the sort of careers that uh, they can go into, so improving careers advice is also part of it. Improving flexible working is part of that but has a more general relevance too. We would first of all uh, extend the right to request flexible working to parents of children up to the age of 18. Um, We want to extend the right to request flexible working uh, to all, but we believe that government should lead by example in this, and so first of all, we would extend the right to request flexible working across the public sector with a view to extending it to all uh, in the light of experience and following consultation with business about some of the administrative aspects uh, of that to ensure that it doesn't have too great a burden administratively on business. On violence against women, we published our strategy on ending violence against women um, nearly two years ago now. We would bring that strategic approach into play. Just two specifics that I'll mention will make funding available for the creation of up to 15 new rape crisis centers. And we also want to learn from the New York police, who've had a very successful um, project in terms of police dropping in randomly on households where there has been domestic violence and it has actually led to a significant reduction in domestic violence and specifically, um, I believe, a significant reduction in the number of murders as a result of domestic violence. So we want to learn from that as well. For women as mothers and in families, we will increase the number of health visitors to give more support in the early years when uh, the uh, baby is young, but also increasing that up to uh, when uh, the the child is five. We'll end the couple penalty in the tax credit system, which currently actually can make it financially more beneficial for couples to be apart when they're bringing up uh, um, children rather than uh, together. And there are some other things which I think affect women but are more general in our manifesto. Um, the woman who is unemployed will be helped by our work programme, which will give more help at an earlier stage than current programmes to get people into sustainable work. The woman who runs a business will be helped by a stopping Labour's jobs tax. The woman who wants to set herself up in self-employment will be helped by our work-for-yourself programme, with business mentors and substantial loans available for people wanting to set themselves up in, uh, in self-employment. And we would make it easier for people to start a business. And we have a need in this country, I think, to encourage more women to start businesses. If we had the same rate of start-ups for uh, businesses for women here as we do in the U.S., we'd have something like, I think, three-quarters of a million more businesses in the uh, in the U.K. So we need to do that as well. And I think women will benefit, as will the population at large, from our uh, commitment to ensure that there are real terms of funding increases in the NHS year-on-year, which is another important issue, and our commitment to the international development goal of 0.7 percent of gross national income being spent on aid, I think will help women in the uh, developing world as well, because we should think about women overseas and not just women here. So those are just a few of the specifics. The underlying fundamental of our approach to women's issues and to these other issues is actually about giving women choice. We don't see that women all want, Women don't all want to lead their life a particular way. We want to help women have the choice to decide how to lead their lives in the ways that they want to lead their lives and in ways that is going to suit them. Thank you, Teresa. Um,
1: and um, our... Um, last panel member um, is Harriet Harman QC she is the Labour Party candidate for Camberwell and Peckham she was first elected in 1982 and is also the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and Secretary for State for Equalities Harriet.
4: Thanks very much, I hope you don't mind if I stand up I'm not trying to be like David Cameron but somehow I think you know my brain, such as it is operates a bit better when I'm standing up um, we still have three five, minutes well, let's see if it does <laughs> just five key points the first is about work and family because women have entered the workforce, they're making a big contribution to the work across all industries, across all services but they're still doing the lion's share of caring responsibilities at home, whether it's caring for children or older relatives we don't think that women should be left tearing their hair out, worrying about how they can afford decent childcare, we think ability of government to back them up with good children's services like children's sure start centres with flexible working uh, which we would extend also to older women which I think would help sorry would help grandparents um and uh, more, longer maternity pay and leave and paternity leave. So I think the first thing is the work family balance. Women have entered the workforce, but there is still an unequal division of labour in the home. And the government needs to recognise that. New man has appeared on the advertising billboards, but he has yet to make a sustained appearance <laughs> in most women's homes. So we have to back them up. Secondly, a fair deal for women at work. Now, women across part-time and full-time work are paid 20% less than men. Sisters, do we believe we are 20% more stupid than men? Do we think we're 20% less committed to our work than men? Do we think we're 20% more idle than men? No, it's sustained, systematic, Discrimination against women in pay at work, and we need to tackle that. And that's why. We're going to, and we say that good employers will have nothing to fear, but bad employers will have nowhere to hide. They will have to publish the gender pay gap in their workplace so that people can actually see workplace by workplace. Also, we're going to introduce positive action, and this is the Equality Act. So if you've got an all-male board or an all-male middle management team or an overwhelmingly male workforce and you want some women, Then you can actually say, if we've got equally qualified men and women applying for a job, we will have you because you're a woman. And that's positive action to allow employers to diversify their workforce and their management teams. Thirdly, in relation to violence against women. We, I think there's been massive progress made you know, with the voluntary organisations like Refuge, Women's Aid, with women prosecutors, men and women working in the police. There's been massive progress made on domestic violence, but we've still got further to go, and we've got further to go on prosecuting rape and sexual offences and dealing with human trafficking and lap dancing. And we have to be prepared to say we've made good progress, but we have got a great deal further to go on that. Fourthly, on international, a point which Theresa made. We are strongly internationalist, and we stand shoulder to shoulder with women in the developing world and have increased our development age, aid. And uh, we're also strongly backing something that Hillary Clinton and Gordon Brown first. Uh, proposed some years ago that we have a strong UN Women's Agency which will back up women there are now women in more or less every continent in every country of the world women in their parliaments women in their governments they need a strong UN Women's Agency to back them up and fifthly labor believes labor women believe That much as though we love to work in partnership with men, they cannot be left to do it all on their own. We have to have a balanced team of women and men working together, speaking up for women. And that's why we're going to have a very strong enforcement of the gender duty, which is in the Equality Act, which says that because equality for women is a public policy priority for the Labour Party that we've actually put in the Equality Act that all public authorities will be under a duty in all the decisions they take to actually Consider how they narrow the gap between men and women and narrow the opportunities, uh, that narrow the gap of opportunities that there are between women and men. And also, if you support Labour, you'll be supporting women who are from time to time prepared to have a row about it. Because actually, if you're not having a row ever, you're probably not making any progress. <clears throat>
1: Thank you very much, uh, Harriet, and thank you again, um, all three of you. Um, Right, so we're going to go to the first question now, and this question is from Chloe Hardy, who is a social justice campaigner.
0: Good evening.
5: Um, Could the panelists tell me uh, which they think is the best way to progress women's equality? Is it the big society or the big state?
1: Okay, I think we're going to go to Harriet first.
5: Okay,
4: I think that what the state should do should back up women in their busy lives. I think the idea that you can uh, get the kids sorted out for school, get their breakfast, pack the lunchbox, get them all organised and out the door, um, meanwhile buy the local post office, run the local school, uh, do a takeover bid for the uh, local police force... I think it's an abdication of responsibility. I think you pay your taxes to have damn good local services supporting you. And I think that the big society would make even bigger divisions with those communities that have got in leafy streets lots of uh, lawyers and accountants and uh, business people uh, with uh, perhaps uh, uh, wives who are staying at home with plenty of time on their hands to do stuff compared to really hard-working, hard-pressed communities without resources. So I think the big society is a big cop-out and uh, would not be in favour of that. I think that we should have a government which backs people up. Not a big government telling you how to lead your life, like you've got to be getting married and staying married. That's the married couples allowed. Okay, so that'll that. be your
1: one minute up now. Thank you. We'll be coming back, we'll be coming back to that. Lynn, well, big society or big state?
2: Um, yes, I mean, I think the that says it all, the married couple's allowance, in as much as, you know, I'm a single mother, and um, I, I just... Oh, like you must be penalised, Lynn. Well, that's what I... Nobody's I'm being penalised, Harriet. no it's my turn. <laughs> my turn. I'm going
1: to penalise you, Harriet, if you need to let, no, no, you need no. to let Lynn finish <laughs> her point, and if you could well, stick to the question on the big society well, and the big state yes, as well, because yes, no, we no, may be no. talking about marriage chats later, just a guess.
2: Oh, OK, all right. Well, in a sense, I'm, um, I think that the state has the responsibility. That is what we pay our taxes for. People have all sorts of circumstances in their lives. Um, if you are a single mother and you have to cope with everything, how on earth can you have any sort of level playing field? If you want women in politics, it would never happen if there was no support there in the community with Sure Start, with childcare, with all of the things that are necessary to free a woman enough to actually take on those challenges, go into politics, change, change things for the better. The big society, is, I don't know, it's just a headline, I think. I haven't actually heard what it means in any detail. Perhaps we will in a minute. Okay, but I do like... We'll, but I don't... Oh, okay. Which we will, because that's well my over minute? a
1: minute. You can, come back. You can okay. come back later. Teresa.
3: Absolutely. The big society is about putting people back in control. I don't believe that big government has actually been a success. I think big government has failed. Just look at some of the figures. We have the highest rate of children being brought up in workless households than anywhere else in Europe. Inequality in this country is at a worse level now than it has been at any time since the Second World War. That's the tweeting going on by the sound of it in the background, yes. That at any time since the Second World War. Big government has failed. And government needs to understand that it does have a role but it doesn't have all the answers. No government is going to have all the solutions to the problems that we face as a society and as an economy. And that is why it's necessary for us to understand what government's role should be and enable people, actually, to have more control over their lives so that government isn't constantly telling them what to do and constantly interfering in their lives. That's not an abdication of responsibility. It's a sharing of responsibility. It's recognising that responsibility doesn't always lie with government. Sometimes, actually, it lies with people and communities. Um, to be helping. And I have to say, Harriet, I think the patronising attitude to suggest that there are people out, not people out there, in all walks of life, in all types of communities, who actually do want to help their local community and get involved,
2: they are there, they want to do it and I think
3: we'll have a better life as a result of it fine, let's hear back from Harriet Harriet?
4: but the thing about the married couples allowance is it is telling people how to lead their lives it's It's saying that the best thing is to get married and stay married and if your marriage breaks down then you are going to be penalised by having a tax break taken away from you so you can learn the lesson that you have failed and I think the real problem about this <laughs> is what message does it send to children because David Cameron has said it's all about sending a message and I abhor the message it sends because the message it sends to children in one parent families or fa- families where there's been a divorce is there is something wrong with your family and therefore there's probably something wrong with you okay, so I think it's absolutely it, but if, yeah,
1: We'll come back to you in a minute Lynn. Just if you can just very briefly address Teresa's point there about the overweening state and the patronising state because we'll be talking about the marriage again later.
4: Well I I think that I think the state should be there in providing good children's centres, good after school clubs, good schools in all local areas good uh, health care in all the local areas, and it shouldn't say it's down to you to actually do it yourself. I think that uh, that's an abdication but of responsibility. Thank that's you. I'm, I'm just going to let uh, Lynn
1: back in, and then Theresa, you okay. are. well yeah.
2: I was going to say, um, it, obviously, I, the, the, it's a balance in the sense that you don't want the state interfering in your life where they should keep their nose out, but when you actually need services to actually give you an equal chance in life, then it's absolutely vital that they're there for you. The big society can't function on its own, it actually needs to be underpinned, and that is what we pay our taxes for.
3: Okay, very last brief word from you Theresa. Absolutely. This isn't about taking the state out of every single public service. It's about saying that there are times when actually we need to work with other organisations. Some really good children centres up and down the country, for example, being run like organisations like Action for Children. We should encourage that. In welfare reform, we should work with the expertise of the private sector and the voluntary sector and social enterprises, who are really able to help get people back into work, rather than simply saying the state has all the answers. The state does not have all the answers. It has a role to play, but so do the rest of us, because we're all in this together, and we're only going to resolve the the really crucial issues that this country faces if we accept that and recognise we've all got a role to play. Okay, this will roll on
1: across the debate, I'm absolutely sure. I'm not going to take audience questions on this one because we've got a bit longer on the next question and I'm sure you will have comments on that. Um, The next question is um, from Jenny Sands um, who um, is kind of retired but who used to work as a literacy better than me obviously uh, (laughs) sorry, literacy um, consultant, Jenny Sands.
0: Yes, I'm here definitely not kind of retired, no. (laughs) Okay, my question is, good evening, my question is who should pay the greatest cost of cutting the deficit? Women who make up the majority of employees and users of public services, and who already contribute over 80 billion a year in unpaid care, or the bankers who caused it in the first place? Okay, I'm going to go
1: to Lynn first on this one.
2: Um, the bankers. <laughs> uh, really? Really no contest on that, and sometimes the, comparis- the comparisons seem overwhelming in the unfairness and the, and the, unjust- um, the lack of justice that they, that they dispense. Um, women, women. sorry, I forgot what, was the- <laughs> I forgot what you said. De- who should pay for the deficit? Oh, yes, the um, deficit. So sorry. For the deficit. Actually, Cross-party that's one of the most important things in cutting the deficit, <laughs> that it doesn't hit those who are most vulnerable and the least able to cope with um, losing their jobs, um, loss of money being cut from public sector. And I think that's one of the ways that the Liberal Democrats are, uh, are tackling the deficit, one of, one of the cuts. is uh, It is in public sector pay, but it's putting a cap of £400 on a bonus. And that means that if you earn £18,000, if you're at the lowest end, you can still have a decent rise. But if you're on 100,000, then you probably think 400 is paltry. And it's about making sure that you're always making sure that those who are the least able to cope have the least money, the least earnings, and the most vulnerable are the most protected in the cuts that you make. And we also have a bank levy, which um, goes to the other question, is we're actually going to charge the bankers a 10% levy, which will raise £2.5 billion towards the deficit repayment.
3: Thank you, Lynn, And we will give you another shot there. Theresa. Yes, in dealing with the deficit, there will be a portion of it which will need to be dealt with by public, uh, cuts in public spending and a proportion which will be uh, dealt with by taxes. We believe that actually the, gov- the current government is talking about a sort of 70-30 split. We're probably looking more to an 80-20 split in, in dealing with that. But we're absolutely clear that we don't deal with the deficit in relation to public sector spending of, on the backs of the poorest. And that's why, for example, we would have one of the tough decisions we've taken is to have a public sector pay freeze, but for all but the million lowest-paid public sector workers. But it's also why we think that we should be uh, doing things like putting a cap on the amount that uh, can be uh, gained through public sector pensions, but also saying that for people who earning fifty thousand, that working tax credit would uh, stop for people earning fifty thousand or more. So these aren't easy decisions, and there are going to be a lot of difficult decisions to be made in looking at dealing with the deficit. But one thing is absolutely clear. It is in nobody's interests, uh, women or men, if government fails to deal with the deficit, fails to have a credible plan to deal with it, because that actually will endanger future jobs. Okay, thank you. Harriet?
4: Well, obviously, the answer to the question is those...
3: Okay, we'll
1: just
4: let well, the bankers,
3: I mean, we I'm have, going to take questions from the audience. Uh, we'd have a bank, bank levy as well, but the bulk of actually dealing with the deficit is not going to be dealt with by a bank levy. The current bank levy raises about 1.3 billion. The deficit is 163 billion.
1: Okay, and we're going to take questions on this one after this. Sorry, um, Harriet.
3: Well, obviously,
4: the answer is those who can afford it and who've done best uh, need to, to pay most. And uh, that's why uh, we... Um, I think it's really very objectionable for, uh, for the Conservative policy to be to cut child tax credits and actually the Institute for Fiscal Studies said it would have to be for families on 30,000 plus in order to save the amount of money that they want to save in order to give a tax cut to the richest people on their inheritance tax. So the richest 3,000 people in this country are going to get a 200,000 tax cut. Now that's not the right way to approach paying down the deficit. I think also next year, not this year, but next year, we're saying uh, by putting up national insurance contributions by uh, 1p, uh, we're saying that really everybody who's in work is going to need to help uh, pay back. Uh, the deficit but that 's the way we can make sure that we can continue those important public services like children 's short sure start centers um, and make sure that we, we protect frontline public services. I think the way to to pay down the deficit is to ensure also that we continue to have economic growth, um, and that 's why we wouldn 't pull the plugs on the economy now by pulling out public investment in the economy when private sector confidence is still so low fair taxes as i 've said, um, but also making sure that we keep a tighter rein on public spending, but in doing that, uh, the Equality Act will require government to do a gender audit of its decisions so that you can see the differential impact on men and women of decisions about public spending, and that gender audit about the decisions would then obviously be public.
3: Okay, thank you. Altrue, do you want to come back on it? Yes, I do want to come back because I think it's important that I come back actually on the national insurance increase because the national insurance increase the government is proposing will hit everybody earning £20,000 or more. And I don't think that's right, and I don't think it's right to put on a jobs tax in the middle of a jobs crisis. And that's why I think it is so important to stop Labour's jobs tax, and as a result of what we're proposing, seven out of ten working people would be better off under a Conservative government. But it also means, and we've got over a thousand businesses now employing over a million people, business people out there who've created far more jobs than any uh, Labour cabinet have created, real jobs out there for people, that the, uh, what they're saying is that this would endanger the recovery, and that means it endangers jobs.
0: If you, if you, oh sorry,
2: <laughs> um, no, I will bring okay. you back Harriet, if but just,
3: uh, Lynn, if you can finish up on this one after Harriet.
2: Harriet? Well, I was, I was going to go back to um, my introduction when I said that we were taking everyone at, um, out of having to pay tax on their first £10,000 of earnings because I think that's an incredibly progressive way of rebalancing the tax system, and it's paid for by taking a bit more for those who, from those who can afford it, which is um, a levy on homes over the value of $2 million. It's about um, removing high, higher rate relief on pensions. So you have to go, in these circumstances, to those who have a bit more to help those who have not so much. So in terms of protection, that's not really about paying down the deficit, but it is about ensuring that those who have the least can survive the recession.
1: Just Just two very brief
2: points on on the
4: national insurance contributions, is that if you don't go ahead with the national insurance contributions increase, then you've got a £30 billion black hole to fill, and we would rather have that £30 billion to support vital frontline public services. We want to keep those services going, and therefore we're prepared to say we'll raise national insurance to pay for that. And secondly, all those businesses who said that it will cost jobs if we put national insurance contributions up, not this year, but next year. They are the same organizations like the CBI and the Chambers of Commerce who were organizing lynch mobs for us um, when we were saying that we wanted to introduce a national minimum wage and they said it would cost a million jobs. And of course we listened politely to them, but we thought they were wrong and we brought in a national minimum wage and actually employment carried on rising. So sometimes Government just has to make a decision, uh, and sometimes uh, the employers, for all that they're you know supported, um, you know, uh, uh, so they support each okay.
3: other on this. They, sometimes they're just wrong.
1: Okay. <laughs> less less than 10 seconds, Theresa, because I want to go to the audience. But
3: I was standing outside a primary school in my constituency earlier this week, and one of the fathers who just dropped his children off. Came up to me and he said, "I run businesses. I've already decided not to employ an extra two people in my business because of the na- potential national insurance increase coming down the road." Okay, so I think you've demonstrated your argument there, right? But I'd like That's
4: what they to do said about the national
3: minimum uh, wage. Yep, well. fine. Okay, I just what I'd like to do
1: at this point is yeah. just if anybody just a very quick comments uh, from the audience on, on this issue. There's a, a gentleman right up there at the back. I just have a question for Theresa May. Which is about we, sorry, the questions have to go to all the panelists. Okay, sorry, yeah. sorry.
4: so it's, it's about public sector pay freeze, and I feel like in the next few years we're going to need the best people possible to run our public services, and surely by freezing public sector pay for pretty much everyone um in the public sector, you're disincentivizing the best people to either go into or stay out of the the, the public sector so i don't and I, I don't know how you would resolve that issue
1: okay, just take one more there, and then you can all three respond to them.
6: Hi, I actually work in HR for a very well-known international retail bank. But before you all lynch me, we didn't take any government money um, and we weren't nationalised. So, um, hopefully you can sort of not lynch me on the way out. The one thing I just want to ask is that do you not think this is a slightly naive and also gendered debate? We're kind of working on the assumption here that all bankers are male. Three out of the nine of our regional uh, retail directors are female. Three out of our nine regional business banking directors are female. And they're probably the best ones that we've got as well. City of London generates 12% of the UK's GDP. Do we really want to be putting women off going into banking as a career? I'm actually working on a report um, on some research on behalf of the Treasury Select Committee about how we get more women into banking and as a bank that has not taken any government money, this has really really hurt us. So, all I want to say is we've got some fantastic women out there doing a fantastic job for our people. Do we want to put them going off into banking as well with such a naive gender debate?
1: Okay, so any comments on the pay freeze and the fact that Perhaps the debate is too gendered. Lynn.
2: Well, I'm not sure that what you have in your bank is replicated in most of the boardrooms in the city, and I think that's the problem. Um, It might seem like a naive debate, but I actually think that women bring a different set of um, arguments. It doesn't mean they get to a different outcome. But in terms of um, making decisions, Uh, Maybe you do regard it as naive if I say risk-taking is a a male trait and non-risk-taking is a female trait. Well, obviously they're not the same, but the the point is that in most of the boardrooms of most of the banks that led us into into this, they were all male, and I think there is an issue there, just as there is in Parliament for exactly the same reasons and need for women at a high level.
1: Did you want to do the pay freeze quickly, or...?
2: Well, the public sector pay freeze, you know, I think there's effectively been a private sector uh, pay freeze as well, and I think there is a need to look at how much can be afforded. And as I said, the Liberal Democrat uh, proposal is a 400 cap, which actually hurts those who earn more rather than those who earn the least.
1: Okay, and uh, Theresa, if you can address the public pet sector pay freeze and if you want to comment yes, I'll, well, i just Just
3: to comment that you're absolutely right to remind us that we do want actually to get more women into banking and more women into the city generally. And that's a wider issue about how you encourage. I hope that what we would do in terms of careers advice and improving careers advice might be part of that process of actually um, encouraging women to look perhaps more widely than some are encouraged to do currently at the sort of careers that they can take up and the sort of uh, uh, pros and cons of those careers and make serious decisions about going into careers that otherwise they might not have thought about. On the public sector freeze, I would just say this, of course it is right that we want the best people, we want good people working in the public sector. We have a state of the public sector finances at the moment that means that these sorts of decisions have to be taken. That's a situation we've come to after 13 years of a Labour government. But one of the things that I would say to you that is going to encourage good people into the public sector is actually... Partly back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the big society putting people m- back more back into control, freeing up schools, giving head teachers more responsibility, giving our healthcare professionals more ability to make decisions rather than having constantly to be making decisions according to some target-driven culture okay. that's been set by Whitehall and Westminster, rather than making the decisions according to what they believe they should do as professionals. Let's trust our professionals in our public sector and let them make the decisions and that will encourage the good, good people good people. Harriet.
1: Um,
4: Well, in relation to uh, bankers, 50% um, of people working in financial services, that's banks and insurance um, uh, services, 50% are women. So it's not that we need to encourage women to go into financial services. They are there. But it's just that they don't get, as Lynn says, into the boardrooms. And when it comes to bonuses... Um, the Equality mm. and Human Rights Commission did um, a formal investigation into the financial services industry and they discovered. I mean, we've been protesting about the pay gap being 20% between men and women across the board. The pay gap in financial services when it comes to bonuses is
5: 80%.
4: Mm. 80%. So clearly, uh, you know, there is structural discrimination going on in financial services. So the very best of luck to you. I'm sure you will be breaking through and be part of, um, you know, helping get that sorted out. Um, And I do think for the reasons that the uh, Treasury Select Committee said, there is a problem with these men-only boards. Um, I think that actually, uh, if you've got women on boards as well, uh, you've you've actually got more of a 360-degree view. And there is this question of groupthink. Everybody thinking that everybody else who is so like them is so intelligent and they're all just going along and then it crashes and you know all banks needed the support of the government because we had to cut VAT to, 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 to help the economy get going because banks wouldn't lend because confidence collapsed. Okay, oh.
1: I'm going, to, sorry, I'm going oh, to stop you now because... Top.
4: Uh, public sector pay, sorry, I forgot to say about that so we've increased pay for nurses, teachers, police, rightly so, but one of the things that's got out of hand is public sector pay at the top, just because it's got completely out of control in the private sector it doesn't mean that taxes should go for extortionate salaries in the public sector and that's why we've put a cap on public sector pay uh, at the top and it doesn't mean we'll get less good people it means we'll get good people who are just not so greedy and who are concerned about public (laughs) services
1: Okay, thank you. Okay, so on the subject of of groupthink, I don't think there's consensus on this question, which is quite interesting. And this comes from um, Alison Mears, who's a doctor. And, oh, right. Can we get the microphone down?
4: you. It was made clear at last week's televised leadership debate that all three parties would welcome the Pope's visit to the UK. If you were able to meet the Pope um, as the government's Minister for Women, what issues would you raise with him?
1: Ah. (laughs) That's the first, actually, an applause for a question. (laughs) Perhaps we should have Alison Mears down on the platform. OK, um,
3: this one, um, Theresa, you get to go first. Yes, and I think I'm going to disappoint you because actually at the present time, I think the issue I would raise is not an issue that is women-specific. I think that the issue I would want to talk to the Pope about is about, has the Roman Catholic Church actually done enough to deal with the abuses that we have seen being, uh, coming out as uh, potentially past abuses Um, to children of both sexes in a whole variety of ways. And I think that is the issue that I'd want to talk about. Fine, Harriet.
4: Well, I think, you know, I do welcome uh, the Pope's visit to this country, but I'm not sure the Pope welcomes me living in this country, and so he won't be so welcoming of me as I am of him uh, if we met. But I do think we have a big Catholic... uh, faith following in this country and this visit means a great deal uh, for those uh, people of Catholic background to have a first uh, state visit um, of the Pope and I think that there are plenty of men and women in the Catholic Church that have got their questions that they want to ask the Pope without they need uh, me to suggest those questions so I think we should just welcome the visit and then they can discuss it amongst themselves.
1: Okay. I might be coming back to both of you on that. Lynn.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, obviously, I welcome the Pope's visit. Um, (laughs) But, no, I mean, you know, it does mean a lot to Catholics in this country. Um, I'm not sure we should be paying for it out of public money. I think there is an issue around that. And I think there's an unspoken, uh, there'll be an elephant in the room if no one raises. The, the Catholic Church's um, effective cover-up of what went on in paedophilia, and I think there won't be a, a clear and clean feeling until that is acknowledged and dealt with, and I'm hoping that when the Pope comes he will sense that and, and bring that with him, you know, I hope because otherwise there leaves an unspoken rift where an apology really wasn't enough um, Yeah, an apology okay. simply wasn't enough
1: Okay, well, I mean, just, just before we move from this question, i just be okay, clear, so, so none of you would have any specific questions on women's equality uh, for the Pope. <laughs>
2: Sorry. I, um, I suppose I, I feel most of it would be a non-starter in that whatever... <laughs> whatever of my views I put to the Pope, he ain't going to agree with me.
1: Okay. If you both have finished, I'm happy to move on. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Our next question is uh, from uh, Louise Smith, who is a finance director at a charity. Louise Smith.
5: Hello. There's been lots of talk about um, supporting people that choose to do the right thing, i.e. get married and have children. How do you think that the government should be using tax or other powers to promote one lifestyle or family as better than another?
1: Okay. uh, Harriet.
4: Um, Well, I, you know, as I've said before, I absolutely don't think it it should. I mean, it's bizarre, the idea that um, if you've got a man on his third marriage, he would get uh, the the married man's tax allowance. but the first two wives, perhaps bringing up his children, wouldn't actually get that uh, tax allowance. So I think, it's, um, I think it's completely wrong. And I think that uh, public money should not be going in tax relief because of your marital status, but should go to support services that support families in all their different shapes and sizes who are caring for young children and caring for older relatives. And the other thing is that people want to get married. A lot of people want to get married. And the most... The people who are most disappointed when a relationship breaks down is not the government. The people who are most disappointed when a relationship broke down is the people who got married and whose relationship has broken down and the other thing is that politicians aren 't so great at getting and staying married themselves. so the last thing any government should be doing is having a whole load of politicians telling everybody else to, to lead lives in the way they themselves. Uh, aren't able to hack it.
1: Thank you very much. Um, uh, Lynn?
2: Um, I think, you know, you are so lucky if you have a lifelong relationship, whether it's married or, or not married, with a, with a partner. You know, I wasn't that lucky. My husband went off with someone younger and less attractive. LAUGHTER <laughs> But I, I have to say, I find it totally and utterly <laughs> offensive, the idea of giving a, a payment to a married couple, which is, is not a significant payment. And if it is a message, it's what Harriet said, it's the wrong message because what it says to people who are not that lucky. Um, but as a single parent, I got left looking after two young children and my husband went off and when he remarried so he should get the allowance and I'm left to deal with bringing up the children. It is just such a terrible message and a terrible thing to do, an unjust and unfair society, even though marriage and a lifetime partnership is an ideal that I think most people do aspire to, but not necessarily are fortunate enough to to actually manage it. Uh,
3: Theresa. Recognition of marriage and civil partnerships in the tax system, which is what we would do, is not about telling people how to lead their lives. We recognise that families and relationships come in different shapes and sizes. But it is about saying that commitment is important and it's a recognition of commitment. And the figures are very simple. One in four uh, relationships where the couple are not married breakdown before the child is age five, before any children are age five, it's only one in twelve for married couples. So it is saying there is a value to commitment that is the commitment that is undertaken by those who enter into a marriage or a civil partnership, and the tax system will recognise that. We are one of the few countries in Europe and indeed in the OECD that does not recognise marriage in the tax system. Uh, the majority of countries in the OECD do, do recognise, countries like France and Germany and the United States do recognise marriage in the tax system, and I think it's important to recognise that commitment, and that's exactly what we would do, and it's for marriage and civil partnerships. Okay, would anybody, either of you, like to come back before we go to well, the audience? Well, I, I would
2: have thought the more important aspect is where children are involved, and therefore that any money that can be spent on, on engaging fathers with their children, whether it's through reading clubs at school, but separate from perhaps the, the mother who they may no longer get on with. To, to, because we know that children do better, particularly boy children in terms of reading, if their fathers read with them. So I think that sort of pastoral work going on at schools to invite fathers in... And it is in our manifesto. It's called Dads and Donuts. It's something they do in America. And I think I know it's a funny title, but what it's saying is they have parents' evening, separate parents' evening when necessary. They have reading breakfast clubs. Not just separated fathers, also fathers who work all times of, of day and night, who never see their, their children, so that they can read with their children. I think working to engage fathers with their children is something that would be very worthwhile.
1: Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Unless anyone's got anything burning, I'm going to go see the audience. Anyone who's on this theme around family and marriage, etc. Okay, so this lady at the front first.
0: Hi. Um, I don't think Theresa May answered the, the point that the other two made about um, the fact that this break benefits fathers who walk out on however many marriages they walk out on.
1: Okay, I'll take a couple more, and then you can all three of you come back, should you choose. Um, yeah, there's a woman right at the back. With a stripy shirt.
5: I'm Dorothy Harrison, uh, co-founder of Fawcett in the East Midlands region. and am bearing in mind Fawcett's uh, vision of men and women achieving equality in public life and in the home
2: and in social life,
5: uh, I don't think women will ever achieve equality outside of the home until they've got equality inside of the home, and in so-, so that's inside of the family. And so I would like to know what all of you intend to do to change attitudes regarding men's responsibility towards care, care for the children and care for any dependents within the home and the family.
1: Okay, you'd have to take that now because there may be a discussion on care later but thank you very much and just this woman down here on the, the, on the right with the fantastic jacket it's kind of white with black stitching really ok I don't know if you all heard that. Apparently Hillary Clinton has one like that. So <laughs> I got mine first. Power jacket. Uh,
5: I, I'm sorry to direct it to Teresa, but all the palan can answer. You know, Teresa, I have seen you in Fawcett and I've heard you speak, and actually I've really enjoyed you speaking tonight, but I feel you've been left in a very indefensible place by David Cameron because you really did make a change in the, in the Tories about the nasty party and everything. I know they gave you a hook, but, you know, you've put a nice image in. I really admire you. You get the shoes out and everything, and you talk sense, but... This marriage thing is wrong you 're not hearing what I hear on the ground, and you know all the panel anybody who's out there, even if you 're not an activist that 's not what people are saying they 're not picking up they are picking up about men have moved on and it follows them it, it's they feel very unhappy they feel you know this is what i 'm hearing that you know, the Tories, they're trying to make the change in everything, and then here they are, going back into their 1950s world, where society's moved on, do they not get it? And I am genuinely okay. here it, I don't know if the other audience is seeing it, and you need to get out, Teresa, and go to the car parks and the schools where I'm talking to people.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Right, what I'm going to do... Is um, I'm going to um, go back to then Harriet first, and then give Theresa an opportunity to respond to all of that. So Harriet, if you, anything else you want to add?
4: Am I answering the point about? You can answer uh, both points. Um, yeah. The point about how you get men and wi- men to share no, the, in the home. The caring
1: is going to take that question oh, separately. Yep. Yep.
4: Okay. Well, um, I think in relation to um, the married man's. Tax allowance. It is. It is kind of Victorian values. I mean, it's what tells me the Conservative Party hasn't changed. It's kind of back to basics, but with an open neck shirt and wearing Converse trainers. I mean, but we're not fooled. But I. I, I suspect to give her credit, probably Theresa doesn't actually agree with it herself. <laughs> but. But there's. Um...
1: Okay. I think, I think. But I
4: think. I think that you know it was probably dreamt up by a sort of uh, you know what could we do you imagine a group of like in Mad Men a group of men in a room what could we think that signals marriage, you know it's the same with a big society, it's just bonkers, but they, a little group of men have thought
1: this is okay. really clever. Amu- amusing conjecture okay, but conjecture nonetheless <laughs> so I'm just going to let Lynn make a quick comment oh, and then Teresa, you can, oh. you can come back.
2: Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I was just in, in a way just thinking about whether it was incentivising men to move on because they pay no penalty
1: Right, okay, I'm just going <laughs> to give I'm going to give Teresa the opportunity to
3: exactly yes there's a there's a there's a sort of slight bias in some of the comments about the uh, in terms of As in life. what is uh, what is going to be uh, happening Harriet we're not trying to create a recreate the 1950s and it's ridiculous and it's not a married man's tax allowance it's a it's a recognition of marriage and civil partnerships in the tax system and it's exactly what I said it was earlier now I didn't go into all the things that we're doing for couples who are in different relationships. I mean, our flexible parental leave, for example, arrangements, which actually are better than the government's uh, proposals because they give much more flexibility to parents, would uh, apply to couples regardless of whether they were married or not married, uh, regardless actually of whether they were living together in a relationship, provided both of them were had an involvement in bringing up the child, and regardless of the sexuality of the couple. So there are other aspects of policy which are affecting other types of relationship and other circumstances in which people find themselves. We fought, for example, in the Welfare Reform Act, We fought to stop the government from requiring single mothers whose children were under the age of five from having to get involved in back-to-work activities because of the concern that that was hard for them to do until children, they'd got sort of guaranteed uh, time when uh, children were in school. So there are a variety of ways in which we've been supporting families in other circumstances. But the the recognition of marriage and civil partnerships in the tax system is something which says that actually commitment, that that legal commitment that people have been willing to enter into in marriage and civil partnership is significant and it will be recognised by government. Okay, thank you. People I, thank can you. choose, right. nobody's going to be penalised by this, no money's being taken away from anybody as a result of this. Okay, it's going to I be paid for actually out of the bank levy. I just say,
4: okay. if it's uh, just one really, actually, really brief, which, Harriet, very brief, is that actually uh, you, you can lose the, the, the married couple's allowance in two ways. One, if you uh, divorce... Uh, then you don't get it anymore. But the other way you can lose the married couple's allowance is if the woman goes out to work, because actually it's for uh, the woman not paying, not going out to work, and therefore her tax allowance being transferred to him. So a woman who's going out to work to help the family income and because she's good at her job, she wouldn't get it either. I mean, it is more regressive than oh, even you Harriet, imagine is that, it is. Harriet, is that Harriet are you, you're
3: always yet again assuming, actually, that in all the circumstances it's the woman who's going to go out to work and, and not going to be going out to work. And actually, I hope we will come on to answer the question that was raised at the back, mm-hmm. because well, I well. think there are some very real ways in which we can change attitudes to... Who is going to be in the workplace and who's going to be in the home looking after? Right, and the we will come on to that.
1: Thank you very much. OK,
3: right. OK, um,
1: the next question is uh, from um, one of our What About Women campaign partners. Um, and this is from Fiona Booth, who's the chief executive of the Hansard Society. Where is Fiona? Oh,
2: it's <laughs> <laughs> Might be wrong.
5: Thank you. Um, Recent debates on the problem with our current electoral systems have hardly touched one of the biggest flaws in the system. The fact that there are still only two women MPs for every eight men. Now we've actually heard about all women shortlists. In fact, our recent commission, Women at the Top, actually endorsed this. We've actually heard about um, better careers advice. But do you think you could be a little bit more specific about what other reforms you will do to make this more like 50-50?
1: Thank you. Okay, um, Lynn.
2: Okay, well, I, su- I suppose uh, clearly electoral form, the single transferable vote, would change at a stroke the women's representation because it would just be a whole different ballgame altogether. You would bypass so, mu- so many of the barriers that are standing in place of women at this point in time. So that is one of our key manifesto um, commitments. So I'm hoping that with you know, the sort of um, amazing changes that have happened in the last two weeks, that there is actually an opportunity to bring in a system of fair votes. Um, And, of course, all of us as um, parties, I don't know if you're asking about women's representation per per se, um, and I think it's something that we have all struggled with, and I'm hoping that with the Liberal Democrats' fortunes improving so remarkably in such a short time that we will, we will see quite an increase in our women. and We have worked incredibly hard without all-women shortlists, which did make a step difference, but to make sure that, that this election we have eight male MPs stepping down. Four of them will be replaced by women. Some of us think there should be eight women replacing <laughs> eight men, but I think the biggest step change we can make is to a single transferable vote to a proportional system where the selection processes are completely different. where where there's an open and non, um, no barriers in place. We found that our biggest barrier um, actually was women putting themselves forward. And I think the other side of this equation is what Parliament actually looks like. I think if you watch Prime Minister's question, no sane woman would want to enter that gladiatorial piece of rubbish, quite frankly. It is absolute theater. It's a boy's game. It is, in my view, completely meaningless. And that sort of bullying jeering, point scoring is not conducive. And I myself believe in consensual politics, non-adversarial, where you speak when you have a point to make and you actually listen to the other person with respect.
0: Thank you. Um,
1: just a, a, quick, a quick additional question, Lynn, because you are the party who's talked a lot about um, electoral reform. Um, would um, Uh, better women's representation be one of your um, non-negotiables to go into um, to go into a coalition?
2: What coalition?
1: (laughs) Should there be a coalition on the table and you you know there's been a lot of talk um, from your leader about electoral reform being one of the non-negotiables would that include better women's representation? Well
2: it would automatically mean better women's representation. Right
1: okay thank you very much just sorry Cheeky, cheeky chair's question. Very cheeky. Right, yeah, sorry. Okay, I might, I might ask the others one other cheeky chair's question. We'll see how
3: it goes. Right, okay, um, Theresa. I think we need to clear one thing up straight away. Proportional representation does not in itself deliver more women in Parliament. What do, no, no, it doesn't. Lynn. If you have proportional representation system and all the candidates are men, then you get men in Parliament. What you need to get more women in Parliament is the women candidates actually sitting in, uh, in seats. And that's, it seems to me, where it is so important for the parties to continue doing work on this. Now, we've done a lot of work on this. Obviously, the Labour Party did pre-1997 and has carried on with some of their moves. We've done um, a very great deal within the Conservative Party. And as I said earlier, we've changed our selection process in a whole variety of ways. We introduced the priority list. When I was party chairman, I first introduced primaries. Um, David Cameron has since developed that, had far more primaries, had the first two um, open or uh, postal ballot <coughs> open primaries, which were the ones which actually de- delivered women candidates. So we've done a variety of things to try to ensure that our selection process is not inadvertently gender biased, and that we're able to give women also the support through Women to Win, which is an organization I co-founded, to give women the support and mentoring uh, to take them through that selection process, and that work will continue. We'll carry on looking at our selection processes. But to be a non-party political uh, about this, there is one issue that I think still particularly affects women. And I don't think any of the parties have been able to crack this yet. It's an issue I raised with the Speaker's conference on parliamentary representation that I hope they'd be able to look at, and they haven't been able to come back with an answer on it, and that is the cost of being a candidate, which tends to affect women more than it affects men, for a simple reason that if you know, a woman is a, has a family, she tends not to want to use family finances, or feel that she mustn't use family finances for her political career. And it, it is expensive, being a parliamentary candidate. And that's the one issue that none of the political parties have yet been able to crack.
1: OK, thank you. Um, can you just clear something up for me very quickly? Because I did ask Lynn. I went along to um, a brilliant talk that David Cameron did. I said it was brilliant because he actually said, I've changed my mind, I agree with women short- all women shortlists. So Fawcett actually press release and welcomed it. Um, but then somebody else told me that you didn't agree with women only shortlists. And I just wondered, do you know what the current position is?
3: Yes. As I can tell you what the current position... David said, in fact, it was to the speaker, in his evidence to the Speaker's conference that he said that we would be looking from January of this year once our by-election procedure kicked in. If, people, if MPs stood down thereafter, uh, then we would look to introduce some, uh, have some more women shortlists. In fact, we had two... Um, Selections post-January of MPs who stood down. We didn't have Orgain shortlists in either of them, but both of them did select um, black and minority ethnic candidates. They happened to be men, but they were BME candidates. And okay. There was another... That, that's, well, you know, you all, there's all sort of titters going around, but actually we, had, we wanted as a party to increase the number of BME candidates that we had as well, and we have done that, both male and female. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that for me. Harriet.
4: Well, I think that this is um, a democratic imperative um, because, actually, our democracy is not representative if it just represents men or is overwhelmingly representative of men. That is not democratic. And uh, our parliament lacks legitimacy to the extent that it is unrepresentative of women um, in this country. When I was first elected a member of parliament, there was 97% men and only 3% women. And that wasn't because all the men in the country were so great, and it was based on merit. It was not. It was just that uh, women were not being able to make progress um, in the system, and the the price that was paid was that a whole load of issues, like childcare, like domestic violence, like balancing work and family, like women in the developing world, they were just never raised um, in the House of Commons, because it was overwhelmingly a male House of Commons, now we tried all women 's shortlists we tried uh, sorry we tried uh, encouragement, we tried a woman on every shortlist we tr- tried mentoring we tried absolutely everything, and then at the end, the man would still get selected um, and come into parliament so that 's why we decided to do all women 's shortlists, which is like quite a dramatic and drastic and controversial measure, but it made a massive difference now. As I say, when I was first elected, I was one of only 10 Labour women MPs. The Tories had 13 Tory women MPs. Over the ensuing years, when we did (coughs) all-women shortlists, we went from 10 to 94 Labour women MPs, and they've changed the agenda of Parliament as well as changing the face of Parliament. Over the same period, the Tories went from 13 Tory women MPs to 18. So, you know, the point is, unless you will the means you won't achieve the end. And that's why we've got, in the uh, people who are standing down, we're still doing all-women shortlists because we still have got further progress to go. It's always controversial. It's always diff- difficult. But more than half of the uh, people who are standing down this time round are being replaced by women candidates from all-women shortlists.
1: Thank you very much. I'm going gonna... I think, to... I think you've all got a, a fair... At that one, if that's, that's okay, so I'm just going to move on to the next question. I'm going to get as many in as we can. Uh, the next question is from um, Deborah McElveen, who is the uh, policy manager at Women's Aid. Deborah, Ooh, there you are.
3: Thank you. As crime figures go, the fact that three million women a year still experience male violence, ranging
4: from domestic violence, rape and sexual assault, and so-called honour killings, forced marriage, FGM, female genital mutilation, sorry, is shocking and unacceptable. What new actions would your party take and what resources would you provide to ensure that there is prevention, provision and protection that meets the needs of all the diverse victims and their children?
3: Thank
1: you. Okay, so, prevention, provision and protection. Charisa.
3: Um Just a few things. On the prevention front, we would introduce the teaching of consent into sex education. Um, we think that's very important. One of the shocking things, I think, feel, is it's not just about the violence occurring, but it's about the attitudes that lead to that violence occurring. And I'm sure there would be, I hope, I'm sure there will be consensus on the panel about this question of not just male attitudes as to what they can do to women, but actually, sadly, all too many female attitudes about what it's okay for the male to do to them. So teaching of consent in sex education is very important. Uh, We also need to look more at uh, uh, improving relationship education in schools, and about some of these issues about teaching what actually is um, appropriate in a relationship and what is not appropriate in relationships. So I think those are two things that we can do in relation to the prevention. I think, in terms of support, uh, things like, as I said, we would ha- uh, make uh, funding available for up to 15 new rape crisis centres to be set up. Ra- rape crisis centres have been closing over the last few years. I think it's important that we give. Uh, some funding to enable more rape crisis centres to, uh, to be set up and I think we need, to do, we need to do some simple things, I mean government departments don't operate at the moment to the same definition of what violence against women is so we need to just get more thinking across government in relation to this issue and how this issue can be dealt with There there have been some moves that the government has done in relation to the criminal justice system. I think what we need to be looking at in the future is not just about the criminal justice system, it's about these wider issues. It's about uh, issues like the prevention that I've mentioned. And one other thing, um, and Deborah, particularly as you come from Women's Aid, one of the things we would very much want to do something about is the guidance to local authorities about how they interpret gender equality duty and the public sector duty on equality because I know that that is leading in some instances to them not being willing to fund women-only services like women's aid, like women's refuges and of course it's patently obvious that for something like a women's refuge it it should be a women's only service and using what should be something that should be to people's benefit to actually take funding away from women's only services is wrong and it's not what the duty was there and intended for. So we will be changing the guidance on that. Thank you. Harriet.
4: Well, I think there has been uh, quite a large measure of agreement of quite a lot of the things that we've done over the last um, 13 years in relation to domestic violence and rape and sexual offences and human trafficking. Um, So, for example, where we've toughened the law, Domestic Violence, Crime and Victims Act, I think there was cross-party support on it. There was cross-party support for the uh, specialist domestic violence courts we introduced. And I think that one of the really important things that's happened over the last decade or so on domestic violence is it used to always be said just one of those things who knows what happens behind closed doors mm. or she must have brought it on herself and actually I think women working across parties and women working in government and in the voluntary sector uh, and in police and prosecutors and local government have really challenged that and said actually this is not just one of those things that you can't do anything about this actually um, You know is preventable so I think we have made a lot of progress and we can make more but I think there's two things that where there is a difference um, in our manifestos on this Uh, one is um, DNA DNA is massively important in uh, tackling uh, in, in tracking down perpetrators of sex offenses and the thing about sex offenses is it is a repeat offense that if somebody's committed a sex offence, they don't then just not do it again. It's chronically a repeat offence, and therefore, You have to catch the person, not only for justice for that first victim, but to stop them going on committing other offences. And that's why I think that I know that DNA uh, records is controversial, but I really strongly back uh, our keeping of DNA records. They are one of the most important tools in tackling sex offences. And the second (coughs) thing, which I think is slightly different across the manifestos, is that um, the Liberal Democrats say that they wouldn't do any prison sentences under six months Now, we have really argued for uh, men who commit violence on their wives to lose their liberty, to have a custodial sentence. If they come up in front of the magistrates' courts to actually say, this is a serious offense and you're going to go to prison for it. If they have to go past the six-month threshold, there will be a whole load of men who do not lose their liberty. I think the the figures are something like 7,500 men got under six-month sentences. Um, uh, For domestic violence and we fought so hard Lynn and you've been part of that fight to fight to actually have the court saying you don't do that you're going to go to prison, you're not going to walk out of the court you're going to go straight to prison and if we lose those less than six month sentences it will be massively turning the
2: clock back.
1: Thank you. Harriet Lynn would you like to respond to that?
2: Well, Okay, perhaps they should have had longer sentences to start with for domestic violence if you've only got a six month <coughs> sentence, the problem, I mean, you're, you're sort of jumping subjects here in, in a sense because it's not just about violent offenders uh, on women. That six month sentence is generally a lighter sentence given for less, lesser crimes and the point is that if you build and build and build prisons, all, all that you get is young offenders going and learning more tricks from older criminals. Uh, I'm coming out and reoffending, We know nine out of 10 reoffend. So it's about changing behaviour. It's not about lesser sentences. It's about finding another way to actually change behaviour. And so if someone has committed a sexual offence, what you're trying to do is not the incarceration, it's what you actually do and how you actually change that person's behaviour. But I'd like to go back to answering the original question, if I could. Yes, yep. You um, can, um... In terms of Liberal Democrats, yes. It, I didn't know we were funding the same number of... Um, rape crisis centres, because we've put money in for 15 and 10 new sexual assault referral um, sentences. But I I wanted to say something about trafficking, because um, I went into a local massage parlour. It's not something I do that often, but uh, there'd been a complaint about its frontage being dirty. I mean, physically dirty. um, (laughs) No, seriously. And I went in with my assistant, and there were two very bedraggled uh, East European girls in there who were very shocked actually to see a woman come in. And um, so I, I took the license number, I told them I needed to get in touch with the owner. But there was no contact with these girls. There was no one you know, with, the, with what was changing in the police, uh, they wanted to remove the trafficking unit and put it in with vice clubs. It is such a sensitive issue and so important that we, there should be something there. So we, it, we are putting forward the proposal that licensing should actually require multiple language and phone numbers to go into those to go into a massage parlour. It may seem quite a small small thing, but actually there is no one reaching in to traffic girls who have no contact. I'd also just briefly like to say forced marriage, because my, my colleague Lord Anthony Lester actually uh, put forward the private members' bill that actually has now become the law, which has actually given women in that situation in the civil courts, recourse and actually that is at working and has been taken forward and was supported uh, by Labour for certainly. And as and to honour honour killings and cross carries, party I'm sorry cross, cross party. party, and um, in terms of honour killings, I would simply say they are dishonour killings and they are murder.
1: Okay, thank you. And it's great to see um, such cross, uh, a lot of cross party consensus on a lot of that. And um, I won't ask to confirm. I'm sure we will see them ensuring that there is decent funding. Regardless of cuts for these vital services, um, as we go into the next uh, hard times. I'm going to move on because we are rapidly running out of time and I'm really keen to cover all of the questions that came in. So I'm sorry, people with your hands up. Um, I'm going to give opportunities to t- take questions on other questions. Um, but I am going to move now because I said I would. Now, um, this is a very specific question. Um, so it would really help me if you answered it very, very briefly so we can finish the rest. And this one's from Bromin McKenna, who's from Unison.
4: Thank you. I'd like to ask the panel about equal pay. We've got now forty years after the act. Women still earn on average sixteen percent less than men for full-time work and thirty-five percent less for part-time work. Do the panel think it's time that all employers are legally obliged to check if they are unfairly paying women less than men and to take action if they are.
1: Thank you. So if you can give me a yes or no answer, obviously you can give your reasons, but if you can keep them brief. Uh, Lynn, first on this one.
2: Okay, well this is where Harris and I parted company in the Equality Act because we wanted to make it mandatory that companies, not 250, but over 100, should have to publish their pay for women and for men, not individual salaries, but so, put the power into the women's hands to see if they're being discriminated against and take it to a tribunal. Um, For 40 years, as you rightly say, it's been unequal, and I think it was actually a total cop-out to make it voluntary, as Labour have in the Equality Act, for another four years because those large companies are not going to move, they're not going to publish, and, and we won't get equality equal pay in the short time. Can I go on, or do you want me to stop there?
1: Um, you can say it, well, two more things, and then I'm going to move you on.
2: Well, it's, it's also about enabling representative actions when you, when you go to tribunal, because there is, there is then a backlog at the tribunal, and we need to be able to take effectively a version of class action, and whether it was the unions representing or the Equality Commission, we need to be able to do that.
1: So, in answer to the question, I think it was probably um, yes, I, but yeah. I agree.
2: Yes.
1: yes, but I think you've, your actual manifesto is only companies over 100 em- employees. That's, that's your position, isn't it? Not companies under. OK. Right, great. OK, Teresa. Uh,
3: our position is that companies that are found guilty at, dis- at a tribunal of discrimination should have a mandatory pay audit. We would also tighten up the legislation uh, uh, to bring in a reasonableness test for material <coughs> factor defence. Uh, at which, as you know, at the moment uh, companies can claim in relation to uh, gen- different uh, pay for different genders. Um, but we think that it's right that it's actually, if a company is found guilty of discrimination, then they should have to have a, a compulsory pay audit.
4: Harriet. Um, well, I do think it's uh, right that we have uh, it mandatory by law, and that's why we've uh, put it in the Equality Act. We've started with... Um, uh, companies over 250 but obviously once they work out how easy it is to do how easy it is to work out how many men they're employing and how many women and how much they're paying them uh, then actually you know that could then move down uh, to, to, to smaller companies. Um, it's not unusual to give a time for phasing in I mean, I remember the Equal Pay Act, when it was introduced in 1970, it didn't come until 1975, so it's quite normal when you're changing employment law to give um, employers time to adjust to it, but in relation to uh, actually enforcing it, I think... You know, knowledge is power, and information and transparency is absolutely essential, but one of the things that I think is also going to be very important for the future is trade union equality reps, and I very strongly support the work that trade unions <coughs> do through their equality reps in the workplace, um, which is like the strong fend- friend of the person um, at work, um, and I think that they're going to be very promising development in the future.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry I'm going to move on because I want to get the questions in and I will certainly take comments on this next question, um, which comes from um, Sarah Jackson, who's the Chief Executive of Working Families.
3: Thank you. Um, well, th- this is the man question. Um, this is about unless men start taking on uh, more of the caring, women are not going to achieve in the workplace and children are going to carry on uh, suffering
0: from lack of, of father's engagement. It's going to be very hard to close the gender
3: pay gap. So what I would like to know is, um, does government have a role in encouraging or enabling men to take on a greater caring um,
0: responsibility? And if it does, uh, what are your party policies to encourage that?
1: Okay, um, Harriet, your party's policies on encouraging men to take on caring roles.
4: I think that um, attitudes have actually changed and a lot of couples want to start off uh, set out wanting to share uh, responsibility for caring for children equally. But one of the engines for preventing sharing of responsibilities for children at the home is unequal pay. Because if somebody's going to drop their hours back uh, because time needs to be spent looking after the new baby... The person who's going to drop their hours back is the person who's earning least, Um, and therefore what happens is once a a baby comes along, he tends to work more hours and see less of the children, and she works fewer hours and loses out at work, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and therefore I think tackling equal pay gives families more choice about actually who can adjust their hours I think it's very important that we've been uh, we're going to be stepping up our uh, advertising to, uh, to make sure that men know that um, the right to flexible working is there for men as well as women um, and that has worked well and we've also introduced paid mater- paternity leave um, and so I hope that things will change in the future but there is a limit Uh, to what legislation can do on that. Unfortunately, otherwise, we would be uh, doing more legislation, but there is a limit. Um, And um, Well, I was just going to tell my anecdote about elk hunting, but I think people might think I was bitter and twisted. Oh, I'm going to say it anyway, which is basically they've got very, very good provision in in Norway for... uh, for, for men to take time off with their children but they did notice, now this was a long time ago and it's probably improved since then but they did notice that there was a massive correlation with men taking time off under this provision and the elk
1: hunting season <laughs> Okay Right, we don't have an elk hunting season here though uh, Lynn
2: um, The World Cup probably Well we also have the, the extension of the right to request flexible working Um, to all employees. Uh, We have a manifesto commitment of um, 19 months parental leave, which can be shared in whichever way uh, a couple decides to do that, but with no one parent taking more than 12 months of that parental leave. Um, And I think that's probably about as far as we can go in terms of legislation. I, I described before the Dads and Donuts policy. That's more really about best practice, it's not going to be enshrined in law, but I think it's that kind of engagement which gives an equal opportunity um, to both parents to be involved and engaged as to getting men to take an equal share in the home, I think it would take more than all the three of us put together to put that one together.
3: And Theresa, Thank you. Can I, I, I just want to clarify one point from earlier because Harriet accused me of not supporting the party's policy on uh, recognition of marriage and civil partnerships in the tax system. And I didn't answer her, and I thought I should just to clarify, I do support it. So there you are, Harriet. Um, and uh, But on this, on this issue, Sarah, I think it, it is about changing attitudes. We've all got slight different approaches to, to the way we think we can change attitudes. For us, for some time now, one of the key issues has been changing maternity leave into flexible parental leave, which uh, and in our scheme of the 52 weeks that are available, the first 14 weeks would be for the mother uh, only, um, but the rest of the time could be shared between the, uh, the parents, obviously the rest of the time being uh, 25 weeks paid and 13 weeks unpaid leave. Uh, they could share it between them as long as the overall period of time taken off was 52 weeks. And crucially, they could take it off together. They could take time off together rather than just having to to be just one at home um, during that period. That isn't tomorrow suddenly going to change attitudes, but I seriously believe that over time it will start to change attitudes in two ways. I think it will start to change attitudes in terms of the question of who is it who stays at home to look after the child, and I think you will see more men doing that depending on the circumstances, the family circumstances and so forth. But the other crucial thing that I think it will do is it will change the attitude of employers who, when they've got... And this is where I've uh, had a a sort of little battle with Alan Sugar, who said that, of course, you know, when you've got a woman of childbearing age in front of you, effectively, actually, the CV goes in the waste paper bin. Or at least he tells me he didn't really say that. Um, He was only reported as having said that. Um, But crucially if the employer doesn't know whether it's the woman or the man in front of him who's going to take time off with a baby um, under the flexible parental leave then it changes the whole sort of dynamics of their decision making and what they how they look at things
1: okay I'm just going to take a couple of quick comments on this one um, there's a woman here and a gentleman here
0: Uh, it's a slightly different comment but there was recently a big um, media oh sorry I'm Abby from Pink Stinks there was recently a big media furore about padded bikinis for 7 year olds started um, I believe by the Sun newspaper Um, I'd like to know what the panel think about the fact that the Sun newspaper which objectifies women on a daily basis (laughs) was the one that was reporting that story and is there not a cultural shift which all of the parties need to spend a lot more time on whether it's to do with violence against women getting more women into parliament, getting women brave enough to stand up and be counted and to say what they believe would it not be something that they could tackle getting page three off of the breakfast tables and out of the sight of children
1: Right, and there was a gentleman here. if you can make it a comment, not another question that would be.
5: Uh, we've been talking about uh,
4: women uh, having leave after the child's born, but can I just raise a very serious issue about uh, women before the child is even conceived and while they're pregnant? The unemployment benefit for, for an adult, age 18 to 25, is 51 pounds and 85 pence. The Joseph Roundtree Foundation minimum income food standard is £43 pounds a week. It's almost impossible for unemployed women to have healthy babies, which means there's a real risk of, mental, uh,
6: of um, permanent developmental brain disorder, both in the womb and indeed uh, uh, when they are ill throughout life. Is there any chance of you all having a row
4: with the men in the House of Commons to ensure that women have enough income to have healthy babies?
1: Okay. Um, What we're going to do is we're slightly over time, so if you don't mind very briefly responding to the sun objectification question and the gentleman's question there, and then there'll just be a final small little question from us, and um, then um, we're going to have to wrap up, but if you can...
2: Sorry, you're starting with me.
1: Uh, Yes, please, sorry. Yes,
2: well, I mean, I think the um, sexualisation of women and the objectification is, is just tipped over... To an extent that it is in our everyday lives, in a way that it has never been, there's some shocking, shocking photos in magazines where, you, know, young girls are just made to look sexually attractive, and that's just wrong at every, every possible level. I'd love to take on page three, and I suppose, given the Liberal Democrats aren't actually in any one's sway in terms of the press barons, perhaps we could. okay I'll think about it) um, <laughs> Uh, I'll Harriet. About it after the election. Harriet. <laughs> um,
4: well, I I think that one of the things that um, in terms of uh, uh, that I think is very uh, disturbing is the is the big prevalence of um, cosmetic surgery. If you actually look at the back pages of women's magazines, um, it is absolutely masses and masses of. Um, uh, adverts for uh, cosmetic surgery, uh, you know, breast implants, women actually undergoing surgical procedures um, in order to look more like the woman on page three of The Sun, who's probably had the surgical procedure anyway. And I think this is something that we ought to be really discussing and thinking about. You know, we all abhor female genital mutilation, but why do we think it's all right to accept a culture? where surgery, with all its attendance risks, is becoming really quite routine uh, with the idea that you've physically got to um, uh, alter your body shape. I think that there is a whole load uh, uh, more that needs to be done to protect women from sexual exploitation in prostitution, although we've changed the law already and we need to make sure that's enforced. Um, I think that uh, it's very important that we stop the spread of <coughs> lap dancing clubs um, which are um, uh, and that's important, that's why we've given local, uh, local communities the power to object through their local authorities to them having licences and we're saying they're sexually sexual encounters. As far as the Amount that um, is available for uh, families uh, with young children, and I take your pre—you um, uh, know, your pre-conception point. Um, but we have doubled child benefit, and we've doubled maternity pay. And one of the reasons why we're so determined to uh, not allow unemployment to rise uh, any more than it possibly can be helped in this global economic crisis is because there is a, uh, you know, there's all sorts of problems identified with workless households, um, and therefore we want to make sure as many people as possible can be in work, and that's why we've run the economy in the way that we're trying to do to protect people from unemployment.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Theresa.
3: I, I feel bound to point out on that last point that, of course, as I said earlier, we do have more children growing up in workless households in this country than anywhere else in Europe. Um, and that is after 13 years of a, of a Labour government. But in relation to the issue of, uh, I'd like to say something about the commercialisation and sexualisation of children, because I think it is important that we do something about this. And I think that, and there is a role for government here. And one of the things that we would do is be um, banning some of the, the sort of uh, marketing techniques, peer to peer marketing, for example, for in uh, children, and the use of sort of, I'm um, um, trying to think of the exact phrase, but it's sort of children's, I'm not, not going to say children's ambassadors, but it's the, sort of the use of children as promoters on social networks of products to other children. Um, so I think issues like that do need to be addressed. And also government can say to advertising and marketing agencies, actually, if you're found guilty of breaking these rules, then there will be a ban for a certain period of time, we'd say for three years, for you getting any government advertising contracts. So government can use its weight in that sense of ensuring that people actually abide by these. No, I'm not it going to b-
1: start with, It starts there. It's okay. Symbolic, it would be a symbolic thing. Okay, I think um, feelings have been made known on page 3. Does anybody want to give a yes or no answer about banning page 3? You're welcome I think to. We should
4: all do it together. The only way. It's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> I will if they will. We'll talk about it afterwards.
2: And I will if they will, but first I've first got, got to get re elected.
1: Okay, which, which, right, okay, now I'm but getting I, lots no. of, of, of stuff in the back of the room because we are over time. Um, now there's two things I just wanted to say. There was a couple of really important questions we couldn't go through, but I wanted to flag that one has partly been discussed. We had a partner here, Object. Um, who were specifically asking about what they would do to tackle the sex and the porn industries and they asked would you sign their charter to taking action on those issues um, I don't know if you're familiar with the object charter
2: I have, I have signed it well, we'll make
1: sure you get it and object we're really sorry um, that you didn't get your question um, yeah. So it's, well, the, the other question was a very important one. It was going to be from Katie Ghosh who is director of the British Human Rights, and um, about whether the par- what the parties would do to use the Human Rights Act and adhere to it, um, the UN Convention on Discrimination Against Women. Um, I have to say that um, from our perspective, um, all the parties' manifestos on CEDAW uh, leaves a bit to be desired, and um, I'm sure. And, and similarly, there's, you know, there could be stronger commitments on the Human Rights Act. So. Both of those, all of those questions are on the Fawcett website. The parties have answered it. So if you want to go and have a look and comment before polling day, because we will be making their answers on human rights and objectification and other issues known. Um, so I'm really, really sorry. And there was a whole load of questions that I didn't get through as well. But I wanted to give the, those issues. But we do have a final one. It's like Blue Peter, because we set them a task earlier. <laughs> Um, because as I mentioned um, it's been a bit of a male pale and stale election and there's been a lot of talk about fantasy cabinets Um, I don't know whether you've seen that cabinets of all talents but all the ones I've seen um, there was a poll in politics home this week were all men so and we asked our esteemed guests if they were prime prime minister and they could pick their fantasy cabinets of all talents um, and they could pick any women from politics or not in politics and they can pick three each who would they pick and why so we thought you'd like to hear that mm. and like to hear about some some women they think would be good and I'm going to start at the end with Lynn
2: oh my goodness um, well, I didn't I didn't do it <laughs> <laughs>
0: so
1: and we wonder why there's still not senior representation I <laughs> I mean, <I>, <laughs> got as
2: far as uh, Shirley Williams because she is actually my political hero and I think she is an incredible woman And then I got sidetracked. Well, what I want to say is I'm not really, you know, fantasy cabinets, uh, I think the women should be in the cabinet. I don't think we need to go into fantasy. There's some very good women in parliament and they should mostly be in the cabinet. Um, (laughs) um, And at this point, I don't think, you know, I think it'd be uh, arrogant. in, In a sense, there's been too much talk about who does what with whom when. In politics and in the future government. And right now, I think we should just be concentrating on the issues. So I think mean, it's a really boring answer, but there you go.
3: As is your want. Thank you. Teresa, thank you. Well, it's, I mean, obviously, who's in the, uh, in the cabinet of the Conservative government will be the matter for David Cameron. And there are more women in the shadow cabinet currently than there are women in the cabinet, and uh, I would hope that women in the shadow cabinet would be able to... Uh, um, play their part in national politics and carry on doing so. But I'm going to name three women who I think it would be interesting perhaps to talk to um, because of their particular experience and Mm -hmm. issues that they deal with and sort of to have. One is Kelly Holmes, who I think could tell us an awful lot about encouraging women in sport and activity and particularly for young women. Um, One is Linda Bennett, who I think is a very good businesswoman and also makes great shoes. And... (laughs) uh, And the third I'm going to mention is actually Emma Thompson for the work that she's done on human trafficking. Um, And I think listening to her and what she has to say on that would be very good too. Thank you. And finally, Harriet.
4: Um, Well, uh, in my fantasy cabinet, I would put um, Arlene Phillips, who would champion uh, the tackling of discrimination against older women and run a campaign called You're Not Past It When You're Past Sixty. I would also have uh, Monica Mbega, who is is a fantastic um, Tanzanian woman MP, and if anybody is going to help liberate the women in villages in Africa, she'd be the absolutely fantastic person to do that. Um, uh, I'm also going to go abroad to pick for my uh, fantasy cabinet Nancy Pelosi, who's been the powerhouse behind the health reforms, and who also says that in politics you need to really consider the four-letter word she says, jobs. jarbs is the four-letter word, <laughs> then I would also pick a fantastic Spanish woman called Bibiana Almagra, who is the uh, equality minister in Spain, and she is absolutely dynamic and brilliant, and has transformed uh, the work in, about domestic violence, and she says that when a man raises his hand to his woman in Spain, he raises his hand to the Spanish state and I think that is just the most brilliant way of putting it. I'd also put, without looking like a crawler to force it, I' would put Angie Mason in the cabinet because she is just um, all-round, fantastic, and there's many more. But um...
1: Angie, for those of you who don't know, is Angela Mason, who's our, our chair of Fawcett. OK. Thank you very very much and thank you all of you it just remains me first of all to, to really and let's thank again um, all of our speakers Harriet Harman Lynn Featherstone, Theresa May I hope that applause drives you on. I I, I thank the audience. I want to also thank um, uh, LSE, our partners, and in particular their their fabulous um, events team. Um, A huge shout out to the the staff and the interns at Fawcett, who have worked tirelessly to pull this event together um, in two weeks. And they are the most amazing bunch of women to work with and and a privilege to lead Um, and um, I also now want to thank our supporters and our members Uh, for those of you who aren't members um there's a sign-up thing in your uh, magazine you got tonight. Please join me, because we are strong in numbers. And what Millicent Fawcett actually said, she was asked just after she won the vote, you know, how does it feel about the down times? And she said, you know, there are no down times because we are always moving forward. It may not seem like it. Progress is always moving forward. Fawcett is always moving forward. Um, please join us to make us move forward faster. Thank you very, very much. And don't forget to vote.